Hello and Danke schön for downloading the 104th version of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that burns rubber onto your device every other Thursday. We will be spoiling Rush today, just as we've spoiled every other movie we've ever discussed. I'm the short, prickly, three-time world champion who's never not an asshole, Ryan Ellis. And here's my fierce rival, the tall, cocky playboy who has a nervous twitch with his lighter and pukes before races, but even with puke breath, he'd never lose his supermodel wife to a movie star, Lord Christy Gregorio. I don't think you've ever been more accurate in your introduction of me. all of it. Yeah, <laughs> with all of it in your life. Tall, you know, cocky, playboy, twitch, <laughs> lighter, pukes. Supermodel wife. Supermodel all, wife, all movie star, out. lord. I was forced to walk over here this evening, the long walk from my place to yours, because I was originally planning to hitchhike, but only had Italian drivers pass me by, and because I'm not a famous F1 driver, I got nowhere. But you're Italian, so they're being unfair. I know. Self-hating Italians. Self-hating. This makes no sense to me. So it was very disappointing to me. I can't think of a movie we are more qualified to review. Two men, neither of whom are racing fans. The most extreme sport we undertake these days is softball. And maybe if we're really feeling wild this summer, a little lawn bowling. But we will. We will (laughs) critique these guys who are apparently risking a 20% chance to die any given time. And we'll do it readily. We haven't even played pool in a long time. That's too risque for me now. <laughs> I cannot accept the risk. I'm an advocate of the Nikki Louder, Nikki Lauda, sorry, school of thinking about things. So I've analyzed all the risk that goes into pool and the risk of you losing your mind and impaling me on a pool cue is too great. I can't take it. <laughs> 21%. Chance. 21% chance. <laughs> I calculate. Yes, it's sir. just there, right? Well, this is, I think, our fifth or sixth. I think it's fifth car racing movie we've ever done. Is it that many? The most recent was Ford versus Ferrari, yeah, which is the most reputable of the five we have covered. Well, we did Days of Thunder. Right? Days of That's Thunder, Talladega Nights. Pretty reputable. I think and, those are both reputable. But Ford versus Ferrari even more so because the Oscar nominations, the critical oh, yeah, response okay. yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes for that movie was incredible. It did well at the box office. And the fifth movie was, we jammed it in the category, but The Fast and the Furious in 2001. Fair enough. There are cars in that movie, in a car <laughs> racing movie. Cars exist in that movie, <laughs> therefore car racing movie. That was the year, I think, when we jammed. It may have been 2000, the pandemic year, when we jammed some other movies into categories that didn't really belong. Last Did you Boy say Scout. 2000? 2020. I am. I, I know it feels like I it's was been 26. 20, it feels like it's been 22 years we've been living in this pandemic world, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. It's only been two. Oh, man. It's been a long week. When I saw this movie, I couldn't stay focused on it because I have a thousand other things I'm thinking about this week. And I saw it many years ago, I think on DVD or streaming, probably DVD in 2013, maybe into 2014. And I looked at my old numbers, gave it a two and a half star rating out of four, which is not bad, but certainly not raving. But even though I couldn't really focus on this film, I still liked it and got way more invested than I did the first time because I'm actually a pretty solid, if not strong thumbs up on this movie, partly because in comparison to the other movies we've seen in this genre, Ford versus Ferrari, we didn't love it, but we certainly respected the craft and the technique. Right. And this is not far behind it at all, except this one did not do well at the box office, at least domestically compared to Ford versus Ferrari. And it got no real recognition at the Oscars like Ford versus Ferrari did. But this is a damn good movie. Yeah. And it's not the drug movie from 1991 with Jason Patrick (laughs) and Jennifer Jason Leigh. (laughs) When I was doing a little bit of what minimal research I do about the movies we watch. That was the first result that came up. Why, Google, would you think I want to look up Rush from 1991? Why? Well, this movie is also pretty reputable as far as the IMDb goes. So if you looked it up there... I just Googled. Oh, okay. But if you had, it would have, it should have shown up at least. Yeah. This movie, because it's 216th on that list, it's been on there since it came out. People really like this movie on the IMDb. I know it's more boys and fanboys than people, but still. The critics... Great numbers. 89% of them liked the film. 7.5 out of 10 was the average. 236 reviews and 88% of audiences, which are basically Ford versus Ferrari numbers. But it was only 96 that year at the box office in 2013. 42, which we covered 
last year, I believe, was 37th. That's the Jackie Robinson film. Solid movie. And Grudge Match, which we'll do one of these days, maybe this year, was 92nd. But again, Rush, no Oscar nominations of any kind, even though a lot of other racing movies have been nominated for or won editing Oscars, sound Oscars, back in the day when sound effects Oscars were a thing. They're not anymore. They were when this film came out. They did win the BAFTA for Best Editing. Ron Howard's usual guys, Dan Hanley and Mike Hill, won that. And Daniel Bruhl, who does play Nicky Lauda, got many nominations in so many categories from other awards bodies. And people thought he was a shoe in for the Supporting Actor Oscar, even though he's basically a co-lead. But he did not get an Oscar nomination for this performance. And I looked at the other nominees that year. Pretty good category. Hard to say that he should have beat any of them out. But I'm a little bit surprised still that he didn't get nominated because he's damn good, as is Chris Hemsworth. Who are the other supporting nominees? I didn't write it down, but Barkad Abdi, the guy from Captain Phillips. Okay. I'm the captain now. That yeah. guy was one. Jared Leto won for Dallas Buyers Club. Okay. People may hate him, but it was a good performance. Was a good performance. Michael Fassbender in 12 Years a Slave. Great performance there. Right, okay. And the yeah. other two are slipping my mind, but they were pretty good too. Strong year in the category. Mm-hmm. Then. Because I agree with you. This is an actor whose name I can never remember, but I always remember as Baron Zemo in Avengers right. Civil War. Because right? this movie is Zemo versus Thor. Yeah, it is. Exactly. I really liked his performance. And I'll match your strong thumbs up with at least a thumbs up, and you might convince me to be a strong one. I had a few niggling little things about it I didn't love, but in general, I thought it was really good. I was surprised. And this is a movie I had never seen before. Okay. By 2013, Chris Hemsworth was not as big a star as he is now, but Thor was already a thing. So was Avengers. Right. The first one. Well, sorry, I just mean the character of Thor. Like, he was already known through the MCU, so Mm -hmm. he had that level of stardom. I remember it coming out, but this is one of those movies, and we've talked about this at this point many times, about sports movies, the lack of press they seem to get sometimes, the lack of marketing push. And I feel like that was the case here, because I can picture the poster in my mind's eye from 2013 of Chris Hemsworth. That's it. I couldn't tell you what the trailer was. I couldn't tell you Mm. whether it played before any other big movies. And it's a shame, because this is, like you were just saying, this feels like a movie that maybe got undersold based on how good it is. Directed by Ron Howard as well. Directed by Ron Howard. Who's made so many blockbusters, one of the most commercial directors of all time. The movie came out in 2013, September. The rest of the world did like it, so it was a success worldwide. But you have to include the worldwide totals to even get to that point, which I guess isn't a big problem anymore, but we still think of domestic first because we're navel gazers, I guess, over here. By the way, the alternate title for this, for me at least, it was McLaren versus Ferrari. Because this is the Ferrari car versus the McLaren car. Yeah. That's what Hemsworth drives through so much of the film. And ironically, Daniel Bruhl, not Daniel Bruhl, Nicky Lauda, in reality, won his third world championship, and Sam is making so much noise over there, with the McLaren car when he won in 84? 84, yes, for McLaren. He won in 75. We see 76 depicted through most of this film. Then he won in 77, and he won in 84 for McLaren after winning twice for Ferrari. You go where you got to go to win, and I will say, if there's anything that this movie does well, and it does a lot of things well, but one of the things it does is really an excellent job of portraying the two vastly different characters that the movie focuses on, and specifically, Nicky Lauda is portrayed very well as the machine man. I know he's not German, he's Austrian, but effectively, it's that sort of stereotype of efficient German, right? He's all about doing what you have to do to win in fact, he says at one point, when you become happy, that's weakness, right? Which mm. I thought was... He should know. be Russian then, thinking that. I don't even mean recent developments. I'm just saying that's what the Russians have always been depicted as, even in other films and books. <laughs> like Drago? Russians are always struggling for anything, let alone happiness. I'll never find that. That's a carryover from post-World War II, East German efficiency, or just German efficiency meets East German, bland, Soviet rule kind of stuff, melded together into this stereotype. I don't know what it was about that moment. Not that I got teary-eyed or anything, but just as an encapsulation of how effectively the movie and the actor, Daniel Bruhl. Daniel Bruhl. Bruhl. B-R-U-H-L. It just showed me how effective the movie had been until that point, and it took place at about like the hour 10 mark or so. Oh, when he gets in the accident and he's on fire? No, when he gets married. And oh, okay. <laughs> the opposite of that, then. <laughs> Depending on your perspective, I guess. <laughs> They're in Ibiza or something on their honeymoon, and it's that shot of them in the vacation house where he basically says... His awkward proposal? 
post awkward proposal, okay. which is also great. I love that proposal because I'm like, oh, this guy's me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to forget your birthday. I won't bring you flowers, but if I'm going to do this to anyone, it may as well be you, baby. Yeah, like, good enough. Yeah, okay, fine. All right, cool. But yeah, when he says to his now wife, I'm happy and that's a bad thing because when you're happy, that gives you weakness. You now have something to lose. Fear creeps into your heart. That's very sad. And it's also like a great bit of little foreboding for what yeah. will shortly happen, right? Makes you wonder if Louder really felt that way because the movie is saying that he knew something was going to happen to him. He sees somebody, I think I read that person was decapitated. Sorry, not decapitated. I think the movie portrays that. This movie is R-rated, by the way. Oh, it's gruesome. And it earns it oh, for yeah. many reasons. The language, a lot of nudity, and some violence. That broken leg with the bones just protruding. Oh, maybe I was way. distracted, like oh. I said, at that point. I didn't see that. I would not want to see that. Anyway, so the guy that's depicted, I think, is supposed to have been cut in half, actually. But either way, he died. Good Lord. And the movie portrays that now Lauda is gun-shy because of the rain in Germany. And he says, we shouldn't race today. But then right. Hunt and the others, no, you're just trying to get out of this. And I can see why they would think that. Except Lauda yeah. is a competitor. They should realize he's not somebody who's trying to weasel his way into a championship. He would want to win. But this is common sense. And then he does have this serious accident and could have easily died in that fire because his lungs, as much as his skin, get burned. Yeah, he's breathing in the fuel that's being mm -hmm. ignited. And it's toxic, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And then they also show when he's buckled up. There's a close-up of the buckle, and it almost seems like, oh, this is going to matter later. And it does because the other racer tries to help him can't get him out. If he could have right. done it right then and there, then I think Lauda would have either been fine or would not have been as badly burned. And right. his lungs probably wouldn't have been so badly damaged. And that was a bigger deal than the face, even. And we see the scene where they're vacuuming his lungs. Uh, well, once anyway. I think they do it a lot of times. And he got back racing after 42 days of recovery. That's wild. Tough right? bastard. After spending, they say, nearly a full minute in an 800-degree inferno in the burning car. And like you said, also breathing in toxic fumes from the burning materials. Yeah, six weeks. As somebody as soft and totally lacking in any willpower as I am... Like, I'm out. <laughs> Chris, you only have a hangnail. Done. I'm not playing today. <laughs> Might not even drive again. We'll yeah. drive race Go cars. Going on the injured list. <laughs> Put me on the 60-day IL. I'm out of here. See, what always freaks me out in any sport whenever somebody gets badly injured pitchers in baseball that take line drives off the face yep. hockey players that have bad concussions or those gruesome injuries with the skate blade cuts them somewhere bad mm -hmm. what must it be like to then come back and have to do that thing that just caused you great injury and this is that to the extreme right you were just in a raging inferno in a crashed car he's not recovered yet either mentally or physically he's not recovered yeah. and he comes back six weeks later I can't wrap my head around that. The PTSD element of alone right. freaks me out. Which no one knew about then, not that term anyway, no. in the mid-70s, but we know it now, of course. Well, the burn victim thing, let's get into that. So in a nutshell for this movie, burn victim does the sensible thing and comes in out of the rain. <laughs> At the end, when he doesn't want to race, he's already racing in the last one in Japan when he could actually cinch the championship for the second straight time. Nah, it's raining. <laughs> Sam beneath us, who's making a lot of noise tonight, and Tilly, they feel his pain. <laughs> They do not like being wet. Not by rain, anyway. Ooh, not my fur. Or baths. Although they are freshly bathed as of today and trimmed. It makes you wonder, though. He does a lap in Japan. It is pouring rain, so he comes in after a lap. Makes you wonder, if you were that concerned about your safety and the rain in Nuremberg, why not do the same thing? And I know it wasn't raining anymore, but the track was wet. You had the wrong tires that had to be switched. Why even try it then? Why even try it? Maybe it's exactly what you said. At that time, at least, he was still the ultimate competitor. He's almost literally a machine. And we joked about that 20% risk he's willing to take on any given race. And this clearly exceeds that. But he goes against his own beliefs anyway. Maybe that's part of the narrative here is that he had this very clear belief system because he says it to us not just in that racers meeting before Nuremberg. He says it over and over and over throughout the first half of the movie. It's, I understand the risks and I'm willing to take them, but only to a point and no further. And then he does. As I'm saying this, I'm sort of mentally contradicting myself because maybe that's the whole point. He had to break his own rules, cross that barrier, pay the price before he realized winning the championship's not worth it. Some things are more important. He's got other years. He won the next year, as it turns out, in That's reality. Right. He didn't know that then, but he did win again, and another time after that, for that matter. Yeah, he already had gotten back on the horse, but maybe that's the logic, is I have to at least take a lap, and no, nah, cooler heads prevail. you got to wonder, though, if his team wouldn't have said, and his sponsor wouldn't have said, then why did we come here if you're going to be this on the fence about doing this at all, and then realize, I shouldn't do this. And of course, maybe none of them should in the end. Look yeah. how much hell James Hunt does. He, well, hell, but he races like hell to try to catch up later on. It's a frenzy. 
And as I recall, is it still raining? Because in Germany, it had stopped when he has the accident. But it at is. the end in Japan, I think it's still raining. Yep. And Hunt is just breaking ass. He's going, breaking ass? In <laughs> I like that. Burning rubber to try to catch up to these guys. And then ends up finishing third, which right. does clinch him the championship by one point. But he was risking so much. I always respect anybody who wants to live their life the way they want to, even if that means that they would maybe die doing the thing. Almost any sport, you could die doing it, especially car racing, mm-hmm. or get seriously hurt if it's not, you're not really going to die in a football field necessarily, but you could have a serious brain injury. Boxing, of course, same idea. I do respect that, but here's a guy who is so modern. The movie is from the 70s. We've already made it clear it's based on reality. But this storyline almost fits more in our very current era, the last maybe four or five years, where everyone is saying, especially in sports, Maybe you sit off when, A, your kid's going to be born. You never saw that when we were young. That's right. They get paternity leave now, at least in baseball. I can't speak for the other sports. The got his bell rung thing. Oh, he's fine. No, he's concussed. He probably should sit off. Is it football where you have to sit off for a little while if it's even a possibility? All sports now. Okay, there you go. We didn't see that until very recently. Nikki Lauda bailing. I didn't read this online. I read something about the real people, Lauda, Hunt, and everybody else. I didn't read if someone said, oh, what's that coward doing not staying out there and race? What's going on? Hunt's still going on. Doesn't he want to win the championship? Doesn't he want it bad enough? I didn't read that, but somebody had to have said that in the mid-70s. Somebody would have said that four years ago. People would certainly say that now, but just less of them. Even macho assholes would realize... This guy's not fully recovered, but even if he was fully fine in the first place, if he thinks this is the smarter thing to do, then don't do it. You yeah. would never have seen that, though, in any sport, not that long ago. Or if somebody did it, they would be questioned by everybody. Oh, yeah. It's definitely like a huge shift in not just player safety and well-being, but mental health and things like that. That is a long-needed change in the way we view athletes. It is kind of modern in that way because we don't ever see any of his team when he pulls in. Nobody's going... Come on, Nicky, get back out there. They ask him what's wrong with the car, and he says nothing, and he just gets out and starts taking his gear off. And the team manager, I don't Whatever know. what they call it, the coach. Yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about it. Pit this man, part. pit boss. Pit, maybe the pit boss, I don't know, comes up to him. That's and a like, casino thing, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, we'll go with it. The pit boss says, hey, Nicky, you want me to tell the press that it was a car right. issue? And yes. Nicky says, no, tell them the truth. I'm just not racing. It's not safe. And everyone's like, okay, that's fine. I kind of like the way they handled that, right? Because it demonstrates... And this is one of the things I did like a lot about this movie. I've talked in the past about how the movie's sort of given us short shrift about some things, like not told us or shown us enough to warrant certain reactions. This movie did it really effectively. And this is another example of that because we've spent the whole movie learning about Nicky Lauda, the machine, the man who's only driven to win. This guy's realized that winning is great and all, but it means nothing if you're dead. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are limits right because right up until that point in the movie all he had ever expressed basically through words and actions was the only thing that mattered was winning happiness didn't matter family didn't matter money didn't matter only winning and to make money winning to make money he also expresses that i do this to make money why do you do this and then that simple nod to his wife and off he goes the nice thing about that is it's not simple nod to his wife he walks off and we never see him again there's that final scene right at the end of the movie when he's at his plane and James comes up to say hello. He might have evolved slightly, and I'm talking about Nikki here, mm-hmm. but he's still Nikki. He and James are talking. He asks James, hey, why aren't you out practicing already? You just won last year. He's Go- fucking around. He's literally fucking around. Yeah, and he says, well, screw that, man. I just won. What's winning for if not to like enjoy the fruits of my labor? I'll be there for the first race. Why don't you enjoy yourself some? He's like, no, I like to fly because I want to follow the rules. I'm out there every day practicing because I want to win again. He's still the guy that is driven to win and be the best and all that. Mm -hmm. He's just maybe softened his stance a little bit. So I thought that was a really effective bit of storytelling and character evolution told pretty concisely. Mm. Maybe because we see in the film, and it's probably real, James Hunt often DNFs, does not finish. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if anyone else was close enough in the third or fourth positions going into the race that they could have overtaken Lauda if they had enough points, if Nikki just bails. Because Hunt only beats him by one point by finishing third. Yeah. But the odds were decent, if not good, that James Hunt wouldn't finish at all. And he certainly wouldn't overtake Lauda for the championship if he didn't. So that may be Lauda's thinking too, which is, well, he's unlikely to beat me anyways. (laughs) He doesn't finish a lot of other races. When Hunt finishes, he wins. When he doesn't, well, obviously he can't win when he doesn't finish at all. Lauda explicitly tells Hunt that at one point in the movie. Hunt says, I'm going to win the championship. And I was like, I oh, know you're not. You're fast. You'll win some races because you go hard, you drive fast, but you're too crazy. You don't have enough consistency. And so you're never going to beat me in a series. And that's his thinking. So that's exactly what you're describing. Hunt also is the guy that blames the tools. The expression is a good carpenter doesn't blame his tools. 
But at one point, he calls the car a stinking turd. <laughs> Hunt does. He calls his own car. And this is the McLaren car that he bucked so hard for. He worked hard to yeah. get them to sponsor him and get that new ride with them. But he's not winning. He blames the car. And maybe the car is the problem. But seems like he's also making excuses. That actually touches on one of the few small things that I wish this movie had done slightly differently. I don't know F1 racing from anything, right? Mm. So I don't need the granular rules explained to me, but I felt similarly here as I felt when we watched Invictus and I didn't really understand the rules of rugby very well and what was going on. And we said they weren't explained very well in rugby either. Not at all. Not at all. And in this case, of course, you don't need the same rules explained. Car go fast, car finish first kind of thing, right? So fine. They never explicitly tell you what the standings are in a given year's series of races, except to tell us that Lauda and Hunt are one and two and jockeying for it. But we don't know where anyone else is. So like you said, we don't know if there's anything on the line for any of these other races. And Dreddy does well in that one race, but was he close to being the champion if he'd actually won that race? We don't know. And maybe that was a conscious decision because Ron Howard or the writer felt like we don't want to detract from this one specific rivalry. So Mm -hmm. we don't want any of those ancillary drivers in there. But one thing I wish I'd know more about was the cars themselves, because, like you said, Hunt is often very critical of the car. And we have that whole sequence with Lauda when he buys his way onto a team. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he does is show up and effectively gets his mechanics to dismantle the whole thing, rebuild the engine from the ground up, starts talking about bumping up the horsepower, reducing weight. And then later on in the movie, we hear the announcer say, McLaren assures us that their car is now fully legal and is better than ever. You can do things that make your car illegal within the rules of F1, but we don't know what those guidelines are. Is it an engine weight thing? Is it an engine capacity thing? Mm. For instance, in NASCAR, I'm pretty sure they have a cutout of the silhouette of the car that they lower down over top of it to make sure everyone's using the same chassis when they drive. And we said in Days of Thunder, by the way, that Cole Trickle admits he knows nothing about cars. Yeah. He's no Nicky Lauder then. It was a really fun moment because it's one of those things where he's not trying to win over anybody's feelings towards him. He doesn't care if these mechanics hate his guts, but he has clearly demonstrated he knows. He's never not an asshole. He says he doesn't care if he's never not an asshole too. (laughs) I want to know, because of those various moments throughout the movie where they do reference cars and changes to the cars and legality of the cars, okay, well, tell me what the broad strokes guide. And the funny thing is, this movie has narration here and there, but I think it's mostly at the very beginning, because it's Daniel Brühl doing it for loud in the very beginning, and then we hear it at the very end, where he finally says about Hunt, he's the one man I liked and respected. I was reading online that this movie does gin that up a little bit. Do they? Lauda actually liked this film. He saw it before he died. He died, actually died not that long ago, actually, but he saw it in production and everything. And he didn't really criticize this, but I was reading in many places that they got along pretty well. In fact, they lived together at one point. Oh, really? And yet they have such a fierce rivalry here. They do wave at each other before, I think it's the Japan race. It must be, right? There's an acknowledgement of, you're great and I'm great. And then, of course, the scene at the airport. So it's one of those kinds of movies that has that arc of, we hate each other, we hate each other. A little more respect, more respect, a lot of respect. Maybe not friendship, but respect. The voiceover says friendship as well, but I guess in reality, they really were more friendly than this movie ever portrays. Just like, apparently, they didn't actually drive F1 cars in this film. They were driving F3 cars. I didn't know about that either, F3, F1, all that. They didn't actually have the the top-of-the-line cars to drive in this, but they looked like they were. We wouldn't know any difference. We didn't know any difference. And, you know, those top-of-the-line cars would be, I imagine, extraordinarily expensive to get their hands on for the production. In fact... We know somebody who works in the equivalent of like an F2 or F3 racing series, right? Okay. He works in Indy, not F1, but the same concept. So even in the, I don't want to call it minor leagues because that sounds like too derogatory to the racing series, but in that tier below whatever the top level is, those cars are worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So you can imagine what the Indy car itself or the F1 car would cost and probably to insure as well, I guess. I did love that quote at the end of the movie, by the way, when he says, he's one of the few men I liked in my life, even fewer that I respected, and the only one I envied or whatever. Makes you wonder if the envy is supposed to be the life that James has, because, okay, let's talk about what gets this movie an R rating. There's some language, it's not all the way through the movie, and it's unusual, by the way, for Ron Howard to have bad language or to have nudity, but that's what definitely would have clinched the R rating, because they probably could have edited in post-production, and when this movie's been shown on television, they probably did do that. It'd be hard to edit around the sexuality and the nudity, though, because we see Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones. And also one of the parts, too. I thought she was in the movie more based on the credits here because she's, I don't know, maybe eighth build. And it's not literally, well, maybe it is. No, it's not because Olivia Wilde's third build and she's not in the movie third. Sometimes movies on line when they do the cast list will be how they came into the film or maybe the top two or three people and then how they came into the film in order. But Wilde wasn't the third person to show up on the movie. So however they base this. Anyway. But yeah, she's the nurse. He fucks her in 
the hospital. <laughs> he fucks the stewardess later on. I'm not sure sure there's nudity there. I forget. No, not there. Well, actually, maybe there is nudity because I think I noticed that the one of the women that he's definitely with, the three of them, that doesn't actually get naked is Olivia Wilde. So this movie is very scorable. We just covered one two weeks ago that was scorable for one scene, Bruise, where Halle Berry and Sheila Atim get it on in one of the best sex scenes I've seen in a long time, especially in a sports film. But this movie has a lot of it, too. And we see nice. some of Hemsworth's ass. We see plenty of Dormer. And, of course, she was naked. I think we're not naked. I think she was in Game of Thrones. The Tudors as well. Oh, okay. There Natalie you go. Dormer. So she's used to that kind of thing. Yeah. But this movie does have an awful lot. Of R-rated stuff in it, and kudos to Howard. Maybe that's one reason why it didn't succeed, too, because you do lock out. Although, what kid wants to see this film? But you do make it so they can't see it. I guess that's true. But you're right. This is not a kid's film. You know, sometimes you look at these movies and wonder, why would there ever be, not a romantic element, but like a sexual element to it? But in this case, one of the lead characters, half of his identity as a person, and I assume this is relatively true of James Hunt in real life, is all about his sexual prowess. Lauda had just joined Ferrari. His teammate sees him talking to the track manager and says, hey, buddy, and I think he does needle Lauda a little bit, but he says, listen, I just want to warn you, if you're going to take her out on a date, just know the last guy she dated was a pretty good driver, but was, what do you say, an immortal fuck or something? Like, oh, You mean Marlene, his future wife then? No, not Marlene. This is the track manager. Marlene he meets in Italy when yeah. she's leaving the party. This is just like a random girl he's asking out. We like never... I told you, I wasn't fully focused the first yeah. half hour. So I'm... We never see her Sorry. again. It doesn't matter. It's basically the okay. line that his teammate says about this other guy being an immortal fuck. And then Lauda says to him, who was this other guy? Some guy named James Hunt. Right? Oh, okay. That is his whole identity. And I think the first time we see Chris Hemsworth on screen is when he meets Natalie Dormer in the hospital because mm-hmm. he's just gotten injured. It's, it's like a porno. She's well, treating his injury and then they start doing it. <laughs> this is a bad cut. Yeah, baby, it was a crowbar. And then, <laughs> bow, chicka, ow, ow. I do love the slow motion shot of Hemsworth's glistening abs. and He was in such shape. Coming off of Thor, so. And know, Avengers. I am nothing but jealous of that guy's physique, don't get me wrong. But it kills me in movies like this when the characters these actors are portraying. Listen, drivers are athletes. Fair enough. But, but he's this cut? Yeah. In, in the 70s? And he's doing nothing but smoking and yes. drinking and partying nonstop. No gyms or exercise in sight. And then he takes off his shirt and it's just 0% body fat and rippling muscles. <laughs> we've talked about this a few other times in other films we've covered, where because the modern guys... Look at the other MCU guys, like Chris Evans, for example. They seem like they're always in top shape. Or when Paul Rudd, Robert Downey Jr. get into the MCU, and they get into top shape. And the characters those two are playing don't even need to be in top shape. Yeah. So that's just a thing we see in movies anymore, and especially if you're going to be a comic book character. But the point is that modern actors, generally, especially if they're 30 or younger, are going to be in absurdly incredible shape for people when they play period characters like this. Nobody looked like that. Probably no. not even the actual weightlifters. Well, maybe the Schwarzenegger level people, they did, but that's their <laughs> job to do that. Yeah, we did spend a lot of time criticizing the actor that played Schwarzenegger in Pumping Iron for being too, <laughs> too ripped. This does not look realistic. That was a movie with a porno level score. We talked about that, actually. Bounch, bow, bow. There was a lot of glistening man abs and porno music in that as well, and enjoyed every minute of it, Ryan. Speaking of nudity, we also do see Alexandra Maria Laura, or Lara, who does play Marlene Lauda, when they get married, and they're having their fun in the pool, and she's topless as well. So this is such a beautiful movie. Hemsworth is maybe the most beautiful person in the whole film, actually, but the Unquestionably. other women, wild, like I said before, she's always been a stunner. And Dormer with her alien eyes. But Maria Lara is awesome. By the way, she was in a Hitler docudrama, great film called Downfall. She's, I think, Troutel Jung. I forget who that is. But she plays, I think, a key character in that movie. If you've ever seen Downfall fans, it isn't fun. And a lot of people played Hitler. But Bruno Ganz may be the best who's ever played Hitler. That was about 15, 16, 17 years ago. Maybe more. Anyway. And she was also in The King's Man just earlier this year. Oh, I still haven't seen that. Okay. Mm. But she's also a stunner, and she's pretty good. Yeah, she's basically playing the wife, which is pretty much all Wilde gets to do. When Hemsworth meets her, they have chemistry, but he's already been with Dormer. We haven't really seen Dormer in a few scenes as it is, and we never do see her again. He meets Wilde. They get married. The wedding is fairly accurate. I looked online at a lot of real pictures. Hemsworth is well cast, although, of course, he's even better looking than Hunt is. But Hunt is a dreamboat himself, so Hemsworth is pretty well cast. But the actual wedding, a little more chaste. Yeah. Wilde is wearing this deep cut type thing, and she yeah. looks great, of course. But the actual supermodel, Susie Miller, is a lot more buttoned up. But their relationship is not that much of the movie, and then she's gone not that much past the halfway point. Yeah, it doesn't take long. I guess she exists just so that there can be 
that rockiness in the relationship that I think we're meant to understand is like the tipping point for Hunt to really refocus himself. Yeah, and to give him something to do, too, because we can't just watch him fuck random people all the time. Exactly. Surely he did do that in reality, but... Let me ask you about that, then, because we have that scene with Olivia Wilde when they have their biggest fight and falling out. Mm -hmm. By the way, what was the accent that Olivia Wilde was trying to put on this movie? It was inconsistent, wasn't it? Because she was English at first, because she's playing an English supermodel. And then later in the film, I thought, wait a minute, I wasn't really fully paying attention before. Was she not English? She doesn't sound English right now. But then later in that same scene, oh, there it is. Yeah, I like Olivia Wilde. But maybe he wasn't doing a good job with the accent. I like Olivia Wilde too, but that was a little bit wonky and distracting. But anyway, Chris Hemsworth, James Hunt is flying back to wherever it is he's racing next. And that's when he is just like angrily flicking his cigarette lighter, staring at the stewardess on the plane. And then they get it on mm-hmm. in the airplane bathroom. But then there's that scene. And I wasn't sure if this was the movie trying to be a little bit too clever for its own good. I just wasn't getting it. Because his wife had just yelled at him and he said, fine, I'm a bad person. And she says to him, no, you're not a bad person. But the racing, the fucking, the drinking, altogether, it's too much. Richard Burton, what a choice then. Because except for the racing, same guy (laughs) and less hot. (laughs) Yeah. So on the way back, when he's nailing the stewardess in the airplane bathroom, I'm thinking to myself, man... Keep it in your pants for one second. You just got reamed out by your wife. Reprioritize yourself a little bit. If you want to be a great driver, then focus on that and just leave all the hedonistic stuff off to the side for a year or two. You're going to have your whole life ahead of you. Maybe not, I guess, if you're a racer. But in that scene, they get the close-up of him angrily staring at himself Mm -hmm. in the mirror. Okay, are they trying to tell me that this is part addiction, sex addict? Could be. I don't know if it's an alcoholic thing or just the sex addiction. Is he staring at himself because, all right, this is it, man. Knock this one out because after this, we're focusing on racing. Or is it, I'm hotter than she is. (laughs) And he might be. There is that element of it, too. Like I said, I'm trying to read into something. I'm not sure what the movie's trying to tell me. But there was like a definite focus of him just angry. It held that shot for like five or ten seconds where he's just staring at himself. Well, he is more focused after that, the rest of the film, with the racing. And, of course, he does become the champion that year. And that seems to be enough for him. The winning that one championship, the scene at the end with Loud at the airport tells you that. Live your life. Although he is talking about how he will focus later on. But Loud is the kind of guy, we've talked about this in baseball movies, where back when we were young, and certainly before we were born, they really did have an off-season where they would get to look, maybe not like me, but they would drink and smoke and sometimes have just actual normal jobs because they didn't make Mm -hmm. that much money playing baseball. And they would need to get back in shape in spring training. That's But in this modern era... Training camp. Right. right. Training camp was literally to train and get back in shape. Right. But in this modern era, I think generally people could just fall to bed in December and say, we're going to play baseball next week, guys. And a ton of them, not all, but an awful lot of them could just do it because they're probably always in shape. But obviously in the case of Hunt, there's not much being in shape exactly, but you got to, I don't know anything about racing. We've admitted this many times in the other racing podcasts, but you probably have to do it regularly enough to keep in shape, mental shape as much as anything else, I guess. And also we do see a little insert shot of this. And I read online, this is true. His hand is bleeding in that last race because the shifter was broken or something happened. So he is cutting his hand every time. And you see this in something like football where a guy's bleeding and doesn't even notice it because he's so focused and the adrenaline's going so much. And I guess that applies to Hunt in that race because he's hurt and doesn't even notice it. But then obviously so is Lauda for however many races. <laughs> Look how hard it is for him to put that helmet on when he's in the hospital. Oh, that's gruesome to watch. Man. And it could have been that much easier the weeks or so later when he actually raced with it on and had to have it on for hours. Yeah, that shifter scene was gruesome when you think about it. And when he pulls into the pit with four laps left to go to change out the frayed tires and the guy asks, when did you snap? I can't remember what it was, a brake lever or something. And he says, oh, nine or ten laps ago. And he's still doing it. Ugh. But the scene with Lauda putting on the helmet for the first time slowly, agonizingly. And like we said, this is a gruesome movie. And I guess it kind of fits. If the whole underlying message of this movie is these are two men who are knowingly putting their lives on the line in this super dangerous sport, yeah, you got to show the consequences or the message doesn't really mean anything. But after the accident, and this is before the helmet scene, he's recuperating. They're showing the nursing staff and the doctors doing their thing. And they're gently and slowly peeling the skin off of the burns on his head. Oh, the sound of that happening. Mm. That like, oh. We always ask, can you score at this movie? Sometimes we should say, don't eat at this movie. Yeah. <laughs> And you could probably score at this movie, but you got to like, definitely score at this movie. You got to pick your spots, though, right? Sexy Chris Hemsworth, go. Oh, burn victim. No. Loud <laughs> his wife in the pool. Awesome. Yeah. So it's a roller coaster ride there. Have you seen, by the way? Did you look up any of the pictures of the real Lauda compared to Daniel Bruhl? Great casting. Yeah, it's great. Of course, he has to wear makeup for a lot of the movie when he has been burned. 
but he looked like him anyway. And I think at one point, doesn't he say to Hunt that he looks like a rat? You think I look like a rat compared to the supermodel? And neither guy, of course, looks just like, because both the actors are better looking than the real guys, but they're close enough where you think, I can see the difference, the matinee idol versus the guy who was already a little mousy, ratty looking to begin with, and then suffers this horrible thing. And that is part of the rivalry turn friendly ribbing versus just trying to piss off the other guy and it sort of evolves from you think i look like a rat to the end of the movie when Lauda comes back to the racetrack for the first time he's sort of in shadow looking at the schematics of his car or whatever and hunt comes over and says hey nikki i felt horrible about everything and he comes out of the shadow and you can see which i thought was a pretty good job by hemsworth to be subtle enough for it not to be comical but expressive enough that an audience member can catch this where he kind of like recoils a little bit at the appearance of Nikki Lauda. And then right at the end of the movie, when you're meant to understand, okay, these guys either have a grudging respect or probably more like a friendship, is when they have that conversation about, are you going to get back to the track or not? And Hunt says, no, not yet. I'm going to enjoy myself first. And then as he's walking off, he says, Nikki, looking good. You're the only person that could have his face burned off and it'd be an improvement. Or whatever. <laughs> That's a cute line, right? Because it's the same kind of thing they've been saying to each other throughout the movie, but the meaning of it has changed as their relationship evolved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, also... Lauda says that he was motivated by what happened. So even though Hunt tries to apologize, don't apologize for helping me get back in the track. Yeah. So Hunt was a bit of a dick, but it also meant that Lauda is racing. And maybe he wouldn't have been had it not been for that motivation. We've talked about Daniel Bruhl, and I think we both agree that his performance was excellent. And mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of the real-life Nicky Lauda. I've never seen clips of him speaking or anything. The way he spoke, his intonation, all that kind of stuff, I don't know anything about that. There was something about Brule's performance as Nicky Lauda that tickled me exactly the right way, just the way he delivered his lines. And there was a few examples of this, but the one that really caught my attention, really stuck with me, was during that meeting that he called before Nuremberg to take a vote to say, we're not going to race, right, guys? It's unsafe. While he's pleading his case, an unnamed voice, who I think it was meant to be his teammate saying this with his back turned to Nicky, you hear somebody in the crowd say, he's just afraid. And then Nikki delivers the line, who's the asshole that says this? <laughs> the delivery, I don't know why. It was just perfect. And all I could picture in my head was that union meeting scene in The Simpsons, <laughs> right? All in favor? Aye. All opposed? Nay. And then who said that? And it's like the one Weasley little guy, like, he did. Let's get him, fellas. <laughs> all I could picture here is that Nikki's teammate doing exactly that. So I kid about it, but I loved his performance. I loved his intonation mm. and delivery. I loved that you really read him as this austrian speaks german english well there's something like five languages by the way of course english primarily and there's french there's spanish there's italian and there's german and i think this guy spoke at least two of those languages and maybe something like four i think i read that that lauda spoke a lot of languages it's oftentimes difficult to portray this kind of character in an empathetic way while still maintaining the i mean we talked about olivia wilde's accent and that's just a british accent maintain the accent make it believable make the character empathetic not have it come across as over the top or... Well, he's playing Austrian. He's not trying to be Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Concisely say a thing my brain won't get over. Arnold may sound ridiculous, but he is Austrian. That's the way he always talked. Yeah. So it is real as much as it's a little bit silly. Well, by the way, when Hunt does win the championship at the end, were you like me? I was actually rooting against him. And I thought Hemsworth was Uh, great. We've made that clear. I think James Hunt was obviously a great racer. Awesome. He came from behind to win the championship. Lauda bailed. We understand why, but okay, you don't want to race, then I have a chance to win. And you can't necessarily if I do well. And of course, Hunt does win. But I was rooting for the underdog because even though he's the better racer through so much of the film and the history of their lives, Hunt never wins another championship. Lauda won three in total. I was rooting for Hunt to lose. I'm glad you asked me that because if you didn't ask me, I was going to ask you. How often have we complained about the cliches in sport movies where you meet the characters and two minutes in and you know exactly what their arc is going to be throughout the movie? The ugly guy's the villain, the good-looking guy's the hero. Yeah, and in this case, we meet these two guys, and theoretically, like you said, James Hunt is supposed to be the protagonist of the movie. He's the hero we're meant to root for, but I agree with you. By the time we get to that final race, Hunt has shown himself to be a bit of a selfish, arrogant jackass who's just out to have fun. And like He's getting a little better, at least. He's getting And better. I did like him, but I just preferred... The underdog at this point, the guy who barely lived. Right. And it, that's why I rooted against Hunt. It wasn't by much, but I did root against him to win. It's not that I disliked James Hunt as portrayed in this movie. It's just you feel like Nicky Lauda deserved it more because he just clearly is constantly working at it. Whereas James Hunt is the guy that just has the raw natural talent but never really applied himself all that hard. Mm-hmm. I love that scene where he accepts the driver of the award for F3 or F2 or whatever it was. He basically says, I have no serviceable skills. 
my parents wanted me to be a doctor. I'm really a disappointment to them. But if I put this on my wall and I tell them it's a medical degree, maybe they'll let me back in the family. Thank you, everybody. I'm like, oh, that was great. But I agree with you. By the end of the movie, I didn't really care who won. But if you were going to pick. I would have picked Lauda, probably. There you go. So we're in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hunt, by the way, died in 1993 and only 45 years old of a heart attack. So I don't know. I didn't read if he got in really bad shape or just one of those dumb luck things. Sometimes a person in great shape, look at Bruce Lee. Yeah. has something go wrong and then they die anyway. So I don't know what it was with Hunt, but to die at 45 of a heart attack of all things. Not like he got cancer. Anyone can get cancer, but it's a shame. And then Louder lived, like I said, until 2019. So he had a pretty good long life. Maybe he was just sexing it up too hard one day. <laughs> Could be. And the 45-year-old heart <laughs> couldn't take it because if we learned anything from this movie, it's he did it and he did it a lot. He certainly lived his life as opposed to the guy who understandably pits and quits in the big race at the end in Japan. <laughs> That's a good tagline. That was too. almost going to be the nutshell. <laughs> he pits, he pits and, quits. and quits. We've talked about Hemsworth being in the MCU mostly. And you look at his IMDb profile. He's done other films. They've almost always failed. Mm-hmm. But he's very funny. Even though these movies haven't succeeded. Like Vacation, his cameo on that. He's very funny. I like Vacation, actually. The remake many years ago. I thought it was pretty funny in general. And his cameo was great. He's the best thing in Ghostbusters, the remake of that. That's probably true. He also did In the Heart of the Sea the Moby Dick movie that Ron Howard made that I think made less money than this did. So most of his movies are MCU films, and of course they've always done well. But otherwise, this guy who's got all the talent and all the skills and obviously the looks doesn't do well inside the MCU. It's a shame because I think he can be a pretty good actor, and I think he's pretty solid in this. And of course, perfectly cast, as is Bruel, who played Zemo in the MCU. He's been in several of those, including Falcon and Winter Soldier, the cameo. Not a cameo, he was in the show quite a lot. And then he also was a Nazi war hero, Frederick Zoller in Inglorious Bastards. He's the one that's, that's right. going after Shoshana. Right. They both die in the screening room or the, what do you call it, the projection room in the theater. So they don't even see the big fiery climax of that film. They're both dead already. Christian McKay is in the movie quite a bit, more in the first half. What is his name again? He is Lord Hesketh. Oh, that guy. He played Orson Welles in a movie that nobody saw. I saw it, but very few people did. Me and Orson Welles, and of all the people who've ever played Welles, and plenty have, he might have been one of the best pieces of casting I've ever seen playing Welles. You can see the physical similarities. Like, Even in a movie where he's not playing Welles, like yeah. this. In that movie, I don't know if he was meant to be young Welles or older Welles, but if they put the older Welles beard on his face and grayed up his hair and stuff, I could see him being almost... I think he was younger. I think he was pre-Kane. I think it may have been their Pre-Kane, stage okay. days and radio days, but whatever it was, it was when he was 20-ish, 25. Okay. You can still see the mm-hmm. physicality being there, but I liked that character. I liked him a lot, too. He doesn't have much of a role in the second half, but the first half mostly. Wild was in a movie that we might not cover, but does have sports technically in it. Richard Jewell, she's the reporter in that. <laughs> it's about the guy who was at the Atlanta yeah. Olympics in 96, the bombing. But I don't think there's a second of actual action of sports in that film, but it is a sports film in a way. Uh, it's we, about the Olympics. We might have to cram it in there anyway, because it does star one of the actors we both really like. Paul Walter Hauser, yeah, who's so. well cast in that. Like he was well cast in I, Tonya, as whatever that guy's name was. Wilde, of course, is directing movies, by the way, now, even though she's been acting for all these years. Ron Howard, will have to cover this one of these days, directed Cinderella Man, which I did not love, but Russell Crowe's performance is one of the best things he's ever done. And they shot it here in Toronto, I remember, when they were shooting it. And then he did Frost Nixon, Howard did, with Peter Morgan, who wrote this film and produced it with Howard and Brian Grazer, Howard's longtime production partner. But Morgan mostly does biopics, including Frost Nixon, which is a damn good movie, one of Ron Howard's best in the last 15 or 20 years. And Howard mostly, not mostly, Howard often has done movies about real people and some of his best films. Apollo 13 comes to mind, of course, there. Of course, yeah. So it stands to reason that this would be a solid movie. Rush, if somebody that has history with biopics, that's essentially what this is, just with a bunch of racing thrown in the middle of it, right? Morgan mostly does biopics about British people, generally. And you do have British people with Hunt in this film. Howard is more... Americans, I guess. But yes, they both have done a lot of real people movies. And Morgan also wrote The Damned United, which we covered last year, the soccer film. Which was fun. With Brian Clough. Also a crusty lead character in this movie. Daniel Brule, I guess, isn't technically the lead. He really is, though. Like that's He probably should be. If he'd been nominated for supporting actor, it would be a little bit disingenuous because he wasn't really supporting. He's at least equal or very close to it with Hemsworth. I bet you if you... Broke like, it down. Broke it down. Brule probably had more screen time. He might even have more. Yeah, it's true. It might be more even in the latter half of the movie. I think his scenes, when he is being focused on in his life, those scenes are longer. Maybe that's it. Hemsworth yeah. might have more overall scenes, but when he does, it's more, hey, let's bang the stewardess, and that's 30 <laughs> seconds, but then we see Brule with his wife, and it's more like two, three minutes. That's right. Including that great scene, Marlene does the old it happened one night wave thing and they don't stop these two guys but then for some reason they do and they think oh they must have actually noticed her no they're just fans of his they know him from racing they don't care about her even though she is stunning that was a great moment and it was great because they're waiting by the side of the road and she says to him you haven't had anybody pull over for you yet 
let me try. And then the first card does exactly what you're describing. And she turns to him and says, that was about three seconds. Not bad, eh? And then you're right. They run into the car. They run right by her and they go to him. Like, oh, my One God. One of the few they- funny moments in this film. Well, there's more than a few. I feel like James Hunt has some good lines, and that plays into, like you said, Chris Hemsworth. I didn't laugh at these lines then, but okay. No, but they were more like, eh, that was a cute delivery, right? And I think that's kind of in Chris Hemsworth's wheelhouse. I don't know that I would love him in a pure comedic role. I agree with you that he was probably the best part of Ghostbusters, and I liked him in the National Lampoon Vacation movie that I generally did not like. But I feel like he shines in the ladder stage Thor type of role when he's not being purely comedic, but there's a lot of moments that come up where he sort of catches you off guard with a quick one-liner or something, right? I think that's his sweet spot. And that's kind of what he does here a couple of times, including, like I said, at that awards ceremony where he just delivers about a three-sentence acceptance speech that I thought was amazing and one of the Mm. best acceptance (laughs) speeches I've ever seen. I also appreciated all of the 70s wardrobe that Chris Hemsworth busted out, a lot of big-collared shirts unbuttoned down to the navel and the Mm -hmm. deep V. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amazing wardrobe. It's almost amazing this movie didn't get recognized for some of the technicals, including the costumes. Costumes Of course, usually with racing movies, or often with racing movies, they get recognized for the editing, the sound, and this did not. The cinematographer, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, he's known for Verite-style films. He shot 28 Days Later. Okay. Many years before this movie, about 10 years before this. So it's a pretty good choice to use him as your cameraman when he's used to doing that kind of stuff. And this camera isn't always handheld, thank God, because it was a widescreen movie. Handheld is one thing, but when you have a widescreen movie, it's even worse, I feel. I didn't see it in the big screen, granted, but that would be even harder to deal with, I think, when it's mm-hmm. doing that bobbing everywhere thing. But yeah. he's a good choice for the cinematographer. And Hans Zimmer was a composer. Oh, yeah. Pretty good score. I don't know if it really fits this film entirely, although I did like it. I didn't even register it, to be honest. Well, I was listening to the end credits, and I was in the kitchen getting dinner ready because, like I said, busy day. As soon as it's over, got to get dinner ready, and I just let the movie play out. I thought, that is a really good-sounding score, which I must have heard through the whole film, but only registered more so when I wasn't really watching but more listening to it. But I didn't know if it entirely fit. But he composed for Days of Thunder, Cool Runnings, and The Fan. We've covered all those movies before. The songs in the film are pretty cliche. Much like Days of Thunder, we get Give Me Some Lovin', (laughs) that song is in this and of course in days of thunder okay so the racing they portray about 15 races apparently we talk so much about those two in germany and japan some of them super short clips yeah sometimes it's very brief but about 15 it says online so i'm going to trust that that's true howard doesn't skimp on the sports action because we see an awful lot of racing in this film the action is up there with the very best car racing movies i think ford versus ferrari grand prix in the 60s which won i think some technical oscars Days of Thunder, we've talked about a lot today. Almost any of them. If I was a racing fan, I would have been in heaven watching this film. We're both racing neophytes. We don't really know anything about it. The closest thing I'm familiar with when it comes to racing is just being your passenger in the Kia when you put it into sport mode, which I think roughly approximates some of the driving we saw in the burn rubber! <laughs> you do have to pit often when you're driving the Kia in sport You guys mode. like to joke about that, you and our friend James. <laughs> but when I put it into sport mode... It's no sports car, of course, but there's a definite difference. Oh, of course. Leave the key alone! (laughs) It's the best I could do. It's the best automobile I could afford. (laughs) Listen, some of the passing scenes in this movie brought me back to moments in the Kia. I'm not a fast driver, just to make this very clear to our audience. I do not like going fast. 120 is more than enough for me in our 100 speed limit highways, and I'm usually more like 110 at the most. Ragging on the Kia aside... I did enjoy the sport, or the depiction of the sport. The only critique I had, and this has got to be personal preference, I imagine, especially towards the race in Nuremberg, and even more so in Japan, the last race of the movie, the cuts were oftentimes so quick, and so many of them, so many different angles. And I can kind of appreciate, A, I'm sure Howard is going for a certain impression in doing that, and B, it's probably really hard to film people driving these cars and make it look like they're going at race speed. Yes. Quick cuts probably helps that. If I had to whine about anything with the depiction of it, I would have liked a few shots that were held longer and just showed a little bit more continuous action so you could get a real better sense. So wider shot then too. Probably a wider shot too. Okay. And even if it was footage pulled from random F1 race, I wouldn't know the difference. I think we see real footage in this we do decently often when it's on televisions, especially because then it can look oh, yes. crappy because it should. It's on a television. Exactly. That's my personal preference. If somebody were to say, no, I loved all the quick cut action. It really gave like a sense of intensity and suspense to the shots. Yeah. Okay, cool. And one of the things I did like about it, even though I've been complaining about how grossed out I was by some of the shots, <laughs> is they don't skimp away from showing the impacts of impact. 
by Japan when you've got the final race in that pouring rain that leads Nikki Lauda to quit. It's not a movie where you're like, well, why are you quitting, Nikki? Come on. Get you out fully there. get it. You've been shown <laughs> this is the impacts. And not just to Nikki, but we've seen it with other drivers, too. Yeah. We already said you can score big time. <laughs> not just the lead, Chris Hemsworth, but three or four beautiful women. I give the movie way more than I did the first time I saw it. Because if yeah. you say two and a half stars out of four is whatever that would be, six. six. I'd say more like a seven and a half. Yeah. I might even watch this again one of these days. It was on Stars on Demand. Yeah, I have Stars. You do not. So you probably saw it on Prime, I, I guess, right? Prime. Yeah. I'm not really a car racing fan, but I think of the five car racing movies, Talladega Nights is more fun. Days of Thunder is dumb but fun at times, plenty of times. But this might be the best of the five. I will always have a place in my heart for Talladega Nights. It doesn't matter objectively whether that was a worse movie. If you don't like Talladega Nights, then fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> actually, yeah, that's good. In joke. In, uh, <laughs> in the words of Nikki Lauda, well, I'm being very serious about this. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. <laughs> right? And walking off, right? Serious question. Well, I'm serious too. Fuck you. <laughs> also, the priest, when he goes to try to give the last rites, no, you can fuck off. Yeah. Or whatever the guy says that supposedly Lauda said. There's a few moments in this movie where he tells people to fuck off or he flips them off that are just spectacular. Mm-hmm. But this is probably objectively a better movie than any of the other racing movies we've watched. But aside from my long-held love for Talladega Nights, which means I tend to watch that every so often anyway, this is probably the best racing movie. And I think you probably nailed the score for me too. Seven and a half is a perfectly right-on-the-money score because... It's a fun movie, but it's also a movie with emotional heart, and it's got good racing action. It's also only two hours long. It doesn't linger. Ford versus Ferrari is two and a half hours long. Yeah, that dragged. Ford versus Ferrari at various points. We talked about this, I know, in the podcast. It's got too much stuff. I listened to it not long ago, in case we brought it up today. You especially did not like some of the subplots. Maybe this is why I just like this movie more. It's more focused, and I already said I felt like it was really efficient and effective in some of the shorthand it was trying to use to convey character development or character traits or relationship stuff. Ford versus Ferrari tried to jam too much in and often felt like it stumbled over itself yeah. a little bit. Howard should work with either Hemsworth or Brule and something else. I don't know if he had. Oh, he did with Hemsworth in, in the heart of the sea, but maybe right. something else again. And with Brule, for sure, he should because they were a great combination. So enjoy the Indy 500, which is one of the reasons we're doing this movie in this slot. On May 29th, when cars will be raced, spectators will orgasm when a guy gets in a vicious crash and a talented driver will drink milk. I had to double check that. You win the Indy 500, you drink milk. Is it milk? Yep. Another Will Ferrell reference there. Mm-hmm. Milk was a bad choice. <laughs> in Indianapolis, in what, late May, I hope that milk is cold at least, because that's got to be just a They better be able to afford some good refrigerators, I yeah. think so, yeah. And in two weeks, we'll strap on our shoulder pads and give ourselves some concussions as we gandered a box office dud that chronicled the life of the very first black man to win the Heisman Trophy as Rob Brown plays Ernie Davis in a movie I've not seen in a long time, and I'm not sure you've seen it at all, nope. The Express. We're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. Email us, ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And now we've got 100 and, I think it's four, scroll, 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 104 episodes, including those five or four other racing films. So take her easy, James Hunt. Wait, you generally do take her easy, so as you were. (laughs) (laughs) As you were. As you were, James Hunt. Well done. Die at 45, but you live 45 James Hunt years.